amen to all of that. And uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, we had handed out bottles across that hopefully once uh, everybody in every household got, and those are returned back, need to be returned back by next Sunday, uh, June 17th. If you did not get a bottle or uh, you want to hear about how you can give online, then you can go to Grace Connect and we'll have that information uh, for you as well. But um, they are one of our fav- most favorite partners here at Grace Church that we can uh, come alongside and support uh, as they do really impactful ministry here in North Jersey. One other thing before we uh, get going into our text this morning is, uh, if you recall, back in December, uh, we had came to you uh, on behalf of the board and, and the facilities committee on with some just uh, infrastructure needs, being an older building, things that were kind of needed and, and needed to be funded in order to uh, just keep thriving, kind of ongoing ministry going here. Uh, one of those things, and it's not really um, attractive or really a scene, but it was a lot of just kind of roofing issues infrastructure issues and then our air conditioning unit uh, had was kind of on its way out and so we just came and said hey here's a need we have uh, we had a very generous matching donation and I um, mean praise God in the span of like three weeks uh, you guys as a congregation raised everything we needed to do some pretty serious projects here um, at Grace Church and so I'm telling you that now because over the last two weeks uh, we had a lot of that work done and uh, you might not again see it but I hope you feel it all right, that it's uh, nice and cool in here, and it's going to be throughout the summer uh, that that project was done in the last two weeks. And so uh, thank you for your generosity in that, but then also um, just want to affirm and publicly uh, give gratitude to uh, Zach Main, who hates that I'm doing this right now. I even ask his permission, uh, and I won't ask him to stand, but he is our facilities head, uh, and that is a that is a very behind-the-scenes position. It's purely volunteer. It's a lot of work and uh, a lot of kind of unsung uh, kind of blood, sweat, and tears into that. So can we just show our appreciation for him in that? Um, specifically over the last two weeks, really trying to ensure that everything was done in a speedy timeline uh, so that we were not inconvenienced and really the whole thing went off really smoothly and that was a lot just due to his time and, and effort for that and we appreciate that. Well, let's get going. Would you open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible, uh, there should be a blue pew one uh, right in front of you and you'll find Mark 8 on page 843. So one of the fascinating things to me about the human race is that um, for all that the race has accomplished across history, right, for all the inventions and all the impressive feats and figuring out mathematical equations and, and that would just cause you, if you ever just do this, you kind of sit back, you're like, wow, like the, what we've been able to do and capable of, like building buildings and putting air conditioning in it, like we just take that for so great, like granted so much. It's like that's just really impressive. And, and despite all the things that really the human race has been able to do across history, there is still this kind of simple, objective truth we all face. And the truth is this people are prone to forget. Like, despite all that we're able to do, like, we forget things. Like, we, we know something or we learn something, and then we forget. And we're reminded of this almost daily, right? We forget our coffee on the counter before we go to work. 
We forget people's birthdays. We forget which exit on the highway we're supposed to take. We, we forget our passwords all the time because we're in a world you need like 87 of them to survive. And you have to f- somehow from, like, have a password into a password protector to figure out what all your passwords are. All right? And the reason we do that is because we are prone to forget. And typically, it's even more frustrating when we see other people forget things, right? Like, I've learned to never ask my three-and-a-half-year-old to get his shoes on until the moment we're about to leave, all right? Because if I ask him any sooner, he will find a way to lose them and forget where he puts them, right? Like, like, Caden, get your shoes. Where are your shoes? And he's like, I don't know. Like, 13 seconds ago, you had them in your hand. Like, where did you go? Where are your shoes? And like, just like, I don't know, I, don't, I forget, I, don't, I remember, like, I think Bryn took them, I don't know, all right? And like, and, and you see that, and it's just frustrating when you see, and now we're all searching for shoes around the house as if like it's gold in a minefield, right? And it, it's frustrating when other people forget, but, but it doesn't take long for it to come around and hit you. Like, I'm prone to forget. And it, which is why we always hear about the importance of repetition. The importance of repetition. In order to remember, we need to do and hear the same things just over and over again. It's why we often hear that it takes 21 days to form a new habit or to break an old one. Which, if you want something to do today, go Google the history behind that number. It's really not that scientific of a finding, all right? It's probably more of a myth. But it's why Malcolm Gladwell spoke of a study in his book that anybody can master a field if they practice for 10,000 hours. You want to master something? You can do it. You just need 10,000 hours of practice. Why? Repetition. Practice. With enough repetition, even slow learners can eventually get the hang of something. And, and if this is true for, for physical things, even kind of silly things, like finding your keys or, or working out regularly or uh, learning how to play golf or how to play an instrument, like how much more important is repetition mentally, spiritually, remembering truth? That shapes our lives and impacts the way we think and the way we act and the way we live. We are people that are prone to forget. And we need to remember the same just kind of basic truths over and over and over again. And if you think about it, that the majority of the time, we don't need to learn something new. But rather, we just need to be reminded of what we already know. We oftentimes don't need something new. We just need to remember and be reminded of what we already know. And I say all that because this morning we start Mark chapter 8. It's in the series that we've begun six months ago, and we are now this at Mark 8. I've been talking about Mark 8 often because it's a pivotal chapter in the gospel. Because by the end of Mark 8, there's going to be a decisive turning point in Jesus' ministry. Uh, ever since the beginning that we started six months ago, there's, there's been one question that has loomed beneath all the other stories and all the other questions. And the question was, who is Jesus? That's all the first half of Mark wants to answer. Who who is he? Everybody wants to know. And it's at the end of this chapter that we're going to get the answer. And then from there, the whole back half of Mark's gospel is going to shift to a second question. Okay, what has he come to do? There's really only two questions in the whole gospel of Mark. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And then second, what has he come to do? 
Because you see, Jesus' followers, specifically the 12 uh, men he has set apart to be his closest disciples, they are slow learners. One could say reading through Mark 1 through 8, it really wouldn't take you a long time to read it straight through, maybe 10, 15 minutes, but it is rather repetitive. Jesus has done the same three things over and over and over again. He's teaching and he's healing and he's driving out evil. And he's teaching and he's healing and he's driving out evil. And his disciples have been by his side for all of it. And yet, they just still don't get it. They're not really sure kind of what's happening. They don't really fully understand who he is. And nowhere is this more apparent than the passage we come across this morning. Mark 8, 1 through 10. That the subtitle in your Bibles probably says something along these lines. Jesus feeds the 4,000. Which is pretty cool. But if you've been here, if you've been here for this series, that will probably lead you to go, wait, again? Like, didn't we just, or maybe that was somewhere else? Like, no, you would be right. This is nearly an identical miracle to Mark 6, 30 to 44 that we just did last month. There's actually some biblical historians over the centuries that have tried to make the case that Mark made a mistake here. That he accidentally added the same story twice while editing his final work and then it just kind of stuck. And, and I admit, my first reaction while planning out this series a while back and then even approaching this text was like, oh man, really? Like, can I really think of something fresh to say about this same story? Uh, AJ does video sermons now. Can we just press play? Like, I just like sit down and we'll just watch May 6th sermon. Like, is that cheating? I think that's cheating. But fortunately, man, the spirit just gnawing away at me. Those thoughts did not last long when you get into this passage. Because not only are there some unique differences from last time. But we also need to consider that Mark, think about this. Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit intentionally repeated a nearly identical miracle for his readers a chapter and a half later why why did jesus do this for the disciples to see again and why did mark choose to include it in his gospel again the answer to these questions will prove to be very important to understand and they are the ones that will shape us into the kind of disciples god wants us to be so let's go Mark 8, we're going to read these 10 verses right up front. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district 
of Dalmanutha. Well, in light of the fact that we're preaching through the whole Gospel of Mark, and we did just see a similar miracle happen just a month ago, here's how I want to approach the sermon this morning. First, what are the differences? What are the differences in this one? Second, what are the similarities? And then third, and most importantly, why again? What are the differences? What are the similarities? And then why again? That's where we're going this morning. So start with number one. What, what are the differences this time? And, and while subtle, there are several aspects of this story that clearly distinguish it from Mark 6. First is location. Remember where Jesus currently is. He, he, a few weeks ago we saw he went out from Galilee, out from the borders of Israel for the first time in his ministry. The only time recorded in the Gospels that he left Israel, the, left Galilee, which is the northern half of Israel. And he ventured beyond its borders to Tyre and Sidon, which is northwest on the coast of the Mediterranean. And then he encountered this Syrophoenician woman there. And then last week we talked about how he and his disciples did this kind of 120 mile loop around the Sea of Galilee from Sidon to the Decapolis. It was kind of strange, do you remember? Like he, he could have just gone right back through Galilee, but he decided to take the long way. He took the scenic route, 120 miles, and, and now he's in the Decapolis. And it's a region that is, consists of, of 10 cities, right? It's where it gets its name from, 10 Deca. And it's predominantly Gentile. Gentile just means non-Jewish. There were some Jews living there, but not many. And so he's in a new region on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's in the midst of a people that are largely unfamiliar with him. So I don't think it's, I think it's safe to say they've never seen this miracle before. They, they haven't had this much interaction with Jesus before. So Jesus is there, the disciples is there, but this is a new crowd. Surely they've heard about him, but it's just been kind of bits and pieces. It's all been secondhand, and, and now he's here in the flesh, and he's just doing what he's always done, right? He's healing, and he's driving out demons, and most vitally, he's teaching. But while the message is the same, the way he's presenting it is different. Why would it be different? Because this crowd's not Jewish. With the Jews, you remember what he did? He went into the synagogue, and he would open up their sacred scriptures, which we know as the Old Testament. And he would, he would show them how, how these scriptures, they always pointed towards the Messiah. They always pointed towards a time coming when God would deliver his people. And his, his whole message is that that time has come. But now, the Gentiles don't have the scriptures. They weren't expecting a Messiah. They had no regard or thought of a Messiah coming. And so the way he is teaching, it has to be different. The, the word is contextualization, right? Jesus contextualizes the message of the gospel to fit the audience. This, this doesn't mean the message changes. It means the way it's presented is different in order to be effective, right? Contextualization, it's so vital in teaching. Let, let me give you an example. Contextualization is happening right now in this building. In this building right now, the message of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed in this room, and it's being proclaimed down the hall in the nursery, and if you go down the stairs, it's being proclaimed downstairs in kids' worship. It's a single message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's going out in three different ways. And it's going out in three different ways so that the message can be taught in a way that's understood by the audience. 
This is what happens all across the world, right? We partner with 20 missionary families that go across the globe, and and they serve in cross-cultural contexts. And and when you're a cross-cultural missionary, you don't just need to know the gospel. That's primarily what you need to know, but you also need to know the culture that you are serving in. Why? Because the way you present this gospel is going to depend upon the region that you're in, the, the customs, the norms, the traditions. And so you need to teach it in a way that can be understood and responded to. And, and, and let me break it down even further. This happens in your life. As you engage with friends and with family and, and coworkers and, and neighbors who don't believe in Jesus Christ. I often talk to people from our church, right, who are wanting to know, how can I grow in evangelism? How can I grow in reaching people? I love them. I love them so much, and they don't know Jesus. How do, how do I share that with them? And, and the thing is, and if we want to be effective in talking to people about Jesus, we actually need to have a relationship with them. You know why? Because we need to know what is keeping them from hearing and believing. We don't just have this one three-bullet uh, message that we just send out to everyone. We, we do a lot of listening first. Did they grow up in a church and just walk away because they got bored and the, the lures of this world just became too much and so they just left church behind? Did they have a really bad experience in a church that, that just completely turned them off to Jesus? And so anytime they associate church, they think about something that happened, maybe abuse, maybe uh, they've been sinned against. Maybe it was authoritative in such a way that just crushed them. And, and so they think, there's no chance I could ever go back to that Jesus thing. Did, did they grow up in another religion, devoutly pursuing another God, serving another God? Are their objections primarily intellectual? They just got questions they just can't get past. I just, I understand what you're saying, but what about this? And they just can't get past it. Or are their objections maybe more emotional? Did they lose somebody close to them that made them believe that if, if God was real like you talk about and like the way it says in the Bible, he wouldn't do that to me. I, I had a teammate in college. He was a year above me, and uh, when he was in high school, the night his high school team won the state championship his senior year, his dad coming out onto the court to celebrate with them had a heart attack and died. And so when he's sitting across from me going, I just cannot believe that God would allow that to happen. And so he's, he's not having intellectual questions. He's not wrestling. He just emotionally just can't get past it. So what are the objections? That, that when, when you listen to people, when you hear their stories, what you do then is you contextualize. You don't change the message. It's one message. But the way you present it, the way you talk about that, the way you're going to pray for them is going to be different based upon them and their story. So that's the difference in Mark chapter 8. Jesus has the same message, but the difference is in the makeup of the crowds. And it, so he's going about differently. And I think it's logical to think it's going to take a little bit longer because they don't have the common ground of the scriptures. He's got a lot more to unpack. He's got a lot more to explain. And so that leads to the next difference. He's been teaching these people for three days. It's taken a while. There's a lot to cover. In Mark 6, when that audience was primarily Jewish, that was a one-day conference, not a full weekend. Right? This is three days, and they have nothing to eat. And so I got some questions here, right? I mean, this could mean they haven't eaten in three days. 
or maybe people just didn't expect it would last this long. They packed for one day. Now it's three days and the food's gone. But, but either way, now they're hungry and yet they don't want to leave. And so, again, man, that's just a little foreign to me, right? It's as if everyone just realized now, whoa, it's been three days, <laughs> right? Like, we haven't eaten yet. I'm getting kind of hungry. How about you? Like, I, I just have to confess, and I think maybe this is more me. I don't think I go three hours before thinking my next meal. Like, that's about the time I'm starting to adjust and think about, okay, what's coming? Like, I never really um, figured out where I stack up against normal people, but I'm pretty sure I think about food more than most. And, and I, I kind of just always have. My, my mom, she worked in my high school as an administrator. And so I would drop in her office every day. And my first question would be, um, hey, mom, what's for dinner? What, what, what's for dinner tonight? And, and the only thing is, it'd be about 9.30 in the morning. Like, I haven't even had lunch yet. But I just need to know what this day's going to look like, what meals are coming. And so she had a running joke amongst her coworkers when she would get in, like, first thing in the morning at, like, 7.30. They'd be like, good morning, Jan. What's for dinner tonight? You better start thinking and figure this out. You know, Aaron's, like, on his way down the hall. And, and um, or, or this, like, occasionally I'll talk to people, and, and I don't know, maybe this has happened to you, uh, but they'll say to me, like, talking about work, and, like, I was just so focused and so dialed in that I forgot to eat lunch today. Like, I'm hearing them. I'm just going to be like, oh, that's crazy. But internally, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I'd like to think I work pretty hard. That has literally never happened to me. And I just don't think it ever will, right? So, so personally, I'll just be honest, full confession here. It's a struggle for me to understand. But it's been three days, and they have not eaten. However they got there, they're there. And I think part of it is we see plainly just how spiritually hungry these people were. Because they start hearing this kind of teaching and they forsake their physical hunger in order to remain with Jesus. They, they can't leave. They, they won't leave. Well, whatever he is saying is so enthralling to their own needs, even their need for food. And so it's being set aside because I want to hear Jesus. The last difference is a simple one. The food breakdown is a little different. You notice that? Seven loaves instead of five. And then, and then we're not even told about the fish until a few like, verses later. And then Mark just says, and then a few fish showed up, like out of the middle of the wilderness. And last time it was five loaves, two fish. Now we have seven loaves, and then we have a few fish that came. And so Jesus did two blessings instead of one. Once for the bread. And then once when the sushi showed up. And so the crowd is different. The length in the wilderness is different. And the amount of food available is different. Those are the differences. Now, second, let's move to the similarities. What's similar in this story? Two feeding miracles. To start, notice the compassion of Jesus. Week after week, we just keep seeing this, don't we, in the Gospel of Mark? The, the center of Jesus' emotional life in the Gospels is his compassion. This time, he literally says it. He, he tells his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd. And they've been hanging on every word I've said for three days, and they have nothing to eat. And he shows concern for their well-being. He shows concern for their physical bodies. He goes, if I sent them home, I don't think they would make it. I think they'd faint. 
They live far away, some of them. We need to feed them. And we talked about this at a little more length last week, but it's just worth briefly pointing it out again. The compassion of Jesus is not just for their souls, but also for their bodies. We are embodied people. Jesus is an embodied person. He took on flesh. And I think in the church we can all too often just separate the soul from the body. Where we care so much about souls and yet we tend to neglect the body. Jesus cared for both. He saw the need. He felt compassion. And he said to his disciples, fellas, it's not enough that we just feel bad for them and hope they make it. It's on us to step into the space and feed them. Do you see that? And it's a tangible example of what I think is a very practical, profound truth for us that we should take note of. If you follow Jesus, he will look out for you and your well-being. Do you believe that? It is always worthwhile to spend time with Jesus. You notice he doesn't rebuke the crowd when his disciples come up. You notice he doesn't say, these guys are foolish, man. It's been three days. I thought they brought food. They apparently didn't bring food, and now they're hungry. Let's just send them home and hope it works out. No, he knew that this was coming, and he knew that they were prioritizing time with him, and he knew that if they followed him, he would take care of them. It will never be a waste to spend time with Jesus. So here we are, man, Bergen County, 2018. Anyone have a busy, busy schedule in here? Anyone's calendar looking pretty full? Have, have you ever had days and weeks where you're just frustrated you're not getting everything done? Like not even getting into your to-do list, let alone finishing it? Right? Isn't that we all say to each other, man, how was your week? Great, busy. That's like the autopilot response. And I say it too, and, and so, and man, that's just, that's the way it is, and okay, I'm all good with that, but, but let me just encourage us all with this. Do not sacrifice your time with Jesus. It's not going to give you what you think it will. The more time, the, the more energy to put to other things, that won't happen. I encourage you, don't let your time aside with Jesus be the thing that gets booted from your schedule first on a busy day. If you follow him, you spend time with him. You prioritize him. He will look out for your needs. He will give you the clarity and the, and the strength and the joy in getting things done that you need to get done. So you want practical application? Here's one that Mark has just given us starting this week. Hang on to your time with Jesus. If you've let it go, reinstate your time with Jesus. If you've never even had it, start a time with Jesus. Prioritize him every single day. And if you're not sure what that looks like, man, we would love to just talk about that. What, what could that look like? Let's have some dialogue as to what would it look like to have time with Jesus. What, what, maybe you, that's foreign to you. Let's go. Let's talk. Don't let time with Jesus be the thing that gets booted from your schedule this week. Next, the, the disciples' um, confusion and concern is the same. They're the same as it was in Mark 6. Our brothers here, they are slow learners. Think about this. Jesus says, I got a crowd here, and we're in the wilderness, and we need to feed them. So what do the disciples do? 
Do they start looking at each other and give them the elbow like, Jesus, you sneaky savior. We know what you're planning again. You're, you're going to do the multiply thing again, right? Like This is the sequel. We've been waiting for this to come out, right? No, it's just not what they do. They look around and they throw their hands up. They go, well, Jesus, how in the world are we going to do that? How can we provide bread to thousands of people in this desolate place? There's just no chance. And Jesus is just patient with them, doesn't even rebuke them. Just shows compassion for them as he does for the crowds. And, and, and you know what? He lets them play a part again. Do you see it? He goes, what do you guys got? What do you have? Seven loaves. Okay, wonderful. Let them sit down. I'll say grace. And then the miracle happens again. And everyone eats and is satisfied. And they, they round up the leftovers again. And they look, they look at that. Seven baskets full. Now each disciple gets to share a goodie bag to take in the boat. The miracle is the same. And so is the message. The, the way we got there maybe was a bit different, but, but here we are. What's the message? Jesus is the bread. Right here, here's the main point, the, the top of the mountain view of this whole story, that Jesus is the bread. He turned a desolate place into a feast, and it's meant to convey what he has come to offer by offering his own body, by laying down his own life, by taking our sin upon himself. He can turn cold, dead hearts into a heart of flesh. In sin, we are spiritually hungry and dead in Christ. But for those who put their faith in him, there is life. Jesus is the bread. And only in him can we be fully satisfied. And so this is a miracle that shows us, and I just always just want to point us to this, that the best thing that Jesus can offer you, it's not riches, and it's not health, and it's not a promotion, and it's not a spouse. The best thing he gives you is himself. And he came not to condemn or take anything from us. He came to give himself so that we might be freed into new life. The message is the same. So with that, let's wrap up with the third question and the most important one this morning. Why again? What's the point? I, like That's an amazing message. I think we can all agree that Jesus is the bread. That's a profound truth. But it was great the first time, wasn't it? Why again? Repetition. Repetition. God reveals himself and his provision and his power to deliver over and over and over again. So that it might become this kind of spiritualized version of muscle memory for those who follow him. Remembering what we have seen our Lord do in the past should help us trust him in the present. Remembering what we have seen our Lord do in the past should help us trust him in the present. This is both why Jesus did the miracle again for his disciples and why Mark chose to include it in his gospel again for his readers. Right? First, the, the disciples. Jesus has just been relentless in providing for them and with them by using what they bring to the table and then blessing it for his glory. Last time, Mark 6, fellas, what do you got? Five loaves, two fish, awesome. Okay, I'll feed the people with that. This time, fellas, what do you got? Seven loaves, a few fish, great. Okay, I'll use that to feed the people. 
brothers, don't you see? You bring me whatever you have in faith, and I will use it to do a mighty work. Just trust me. This is about me and my provision. This is about me never failing to fulfill my promises. This is me giving you all you need and when you need it. Just trust me over and over again. Repetition. You can rely on me. Flex your spiritual muscles to trust in me. This is just another opportunity. And this is all he did for three years. Just stacking up moments and scenes and miracles again and again. And I think that's why Mark just does this. He's quick and he's concise and he's just stacking them on top of one another for eight chapters. So that these men in the future can remember whenever they're having a moment where they are struggling to trust in him. And, and we have the blessing of knowing the rest of the story for the disciples. Right now, they are in a tough spot, and they just don't get it. And they, they still won't get it for a while. But after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, when they were put through trial after trial in the book of Acts, what did they do? Just kept trusting kept sustaining, kept persevering because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit within them. They were able to remember. And in remembering, to thrive in the faith in the midst of their trial. Acts 4, Peter and John got thrown into prison and they were beaten. I mean, beaten to a pulp. Told them, you guys need to shut up, man. Stop talking about this Jesus guy. He's gone. You think in those moments... They were able to whisper to one another in between the beatings, brother, remember the bread. He's faithful. How about Acts chapter 7, as the disciples looked on in horror as their friend Stephen boldly stood up for Christ and was the first one to be martyred in the faith, stoned to death. Saying to one another, maybe even saying to, mouthing it to Stephen from afar as he's about to die, Stephen, remember the bread. You can trust him. So why again? So the disciples would remember. And in remembering, trust and deepen their faith. But hear me. This wasn't just for them. If it was just for them, Mark wouldn't have to repeat it in his gospel, right? But Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, includes this story just a chapter and a half later for the church. For you. For me, because isn't it easy to do this? Isn't it easy to read this story on a Sunday morning and go, come on, fellas, you know what's going to happen. Why are you so surprised? Why were you so worried? You were with Jesus. But here's the like, irony in all this. We read that, we think that, we close our Bibles, and we go home, and we proceed to worry about the things we've always worried about. The reason why Mark puts this in again is because this is us. We are prone to forget. We are prone to worry. And of all the temptations a believer will face in this world, by far the most significant and the most reoccurring temptation we will face day to day is to not trust God. To think, yeah, I know God did some good things back then. In the Bible. And I know he's done some good th things for me in my life. But this is a new thing. And this is a new day. 
And this is a new situation, and it's a new wilderness, and it's a new crowd, and the temptation to stop trusting and stop believing, and just to turn to worry instead. You see, worrying is not the absence of trust. It's the replacement of it. Think about this. Worrying is not the absence of trust. It's the replacement of of it, because worrying is an action, isn't it? Just like trusting is. Worrying is a choice. Because we feel that by worrying about something, it's going to get better. It will go away if we just worry enough. Worrying is not the absence of trust. It's the replacement of it. And so the reason why we need the word of God, the reason why we need to hear it proclaimed in church at week after week, the reason we need to read it ourselves day after day, the, the reason we need a community of believers to come alongside and encourage us with it is because we are people that are prone to forget. And the Holy Spirit just serves within us to testify to the truth of God's word in our hearts. Day after day, repetition, repetition, repetition that leads to growth. The idea that trusting in Jesus Christ is a one-time deal and now you're just set for life, you'll never worry again. Has that been true for anyone? Yes, we are justified the moment we trust in him fully, completely. But then there is a daily, ongoing need to trust in Christ so that we might walk in his paths and we might grow and mature and thrive in our lives it's spiritual repetition that's why mark put this in again because every time we trust god in the present by remembering his faithfulness in the past every time we repeat the same action of trust in the midst of the unknown we deepen our faith not only to sustain us but to make us stronger for when it happens again in the future so let us learn from this Part two this morning. Let us be the church full of just imperfect but faithful believers who can come alongside one another in any and every situation and say, brother, sister, remember the bread. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even the conviction that you stirred within me this week that there's nothing in your word that is wasted. There's no story, no passage that is pointless, that is redundant. That it is all in there to save us, to sustain us, to sanctify us and bring us home. Father, give us the heart and the ears and the, and, and, and the eyes and the mind to remember this morning. And let it be for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.